Hey there, this is Damien Blinkinsop with another episode of The Quantified Body. In past episodes, we've looked at how to use heart rate variability to track and optimize many areas of our lives. Strength training, endurance training, adrenal fatigue and recovery, stress management, and using different hormesis tactics to improve our biology in general. If you haven't checked those out, they're packed full of information and details, practical details, and we'll get you quickly up to speed with it. If you're completely new to tracking and biohacking and all of this stuff, then heart rate variability is a pretty good place to start because it's really straightforward and easy. All you need is a heart rate strap and a small app on your phone and you're pretty good to go. So it's pretty low cost also. Today we're looking at why heart rate variability may be the best biomarker we currently have to track our efforts to live longer as well as the other things I just mentioned. The Palo Alto Longevity Prize is a $1 million life science competition that challenges teams from all over the world to hack the code that regulates our health and lifespan. It challenges teams to discover new tactics to increase a person's heart rate variability and thus increase their potential lifespan. Today's guest, Dr. Jun Yoon, is the sponsor of the $1 million prize. He is the managing partner and president of Palo Alto Investors, LLC, an investment management firm with nearly $2 billion invested in healthcare. Dr. Yoon also writes about the future of healthcare and has some pretty strong ideas about how our health and the healthcare will be the greatest driver of wealth in the future. Most of this is published in his column on Forbes, which is an excellent read, by the way. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And if you want to get the show notes for today's episode, the interview transcript and the MP3 download, you can go to verquantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and select the episode there. Or if you want them in your email inbox, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter. Sign up there and you'll receive them when each new episode comes out. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In The Quantified Body, we explore this promise find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. June, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Damien, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So you're involved in this big project called the Palo Alto Longevity Prize. Could you give us kind of like a rundown? What is the vision behind that and why have you put this together now? The vision of the Palo Alto Prize is to nurture innovations that improve uh, homeostatic capacity as a gateway into promoting healthy longevity and health span. Right. So I think a lot of people aren't exactly sure what homeostatic capacity is. So how would you describe that? And why is it particularly this homeostatic capacity that you're linking to longevity? Most people are familiar with the word homeostasis. So think of homeostatic capacity as the network of traits in our bodies that enable to achieve homeostasis. Now, homeostatic capacity you know, is something that's endowed by nature. It's been shaped by evolution. And you can think about it as robustness, resilience, coping mechanism, dynamic range, anti-fragility. These are all kind of similar concepts. But the basic notion is that we have an incredible set of traits that enable our body to self-tune. One of the ironic things about homeostatic capacity is that we don't really realize we have it until we start losing it, typically in midlife, where all of a sudden you start to feel things that you didn't feel before. At nighttime, it's a little too dark, sunshine is a little too bright during the day, riding on a roller coaster, you come out of it nauseous because your body doesn't recalibrate, you know, altitude sickness starts emerging around then, the 
bouncing back from injuries or a jet lag or a late night. All these things are subjective ways that we start to experience a loss of something that we didn't have, that, that we didn't used to feel. It's a loss of something that um, we didn't feel when we were younger. In fact, when we're 12 years old, another way to define health is the feeling of nothing. When we're young and we're healthy, what we feel is nothing. And it's when we start feeling something that we realize something's, something's going on. Right, right. So in a sense, it's this balance and you, you're just feeling well without any sim- negative symptoms or negative feelings, I guess. Yes. So you can think about uh, homeostatic capacity as your body's ability to self-tune and get back into balance or homeostasis. But think about all the things that happen. Well, so we describe the things that are subjective that you can experience. There's also a lot of objective things but that you can't feel that start to emerge by middle of life. And middle of life, again, is defined by the mid-40s. When we are young and our blood pressure is high or our blood sugar is high, the body has the homeostatic capacity to return those numbers to a normal baseline. But as we age, a lot of those numbers no longer return to baseline. They remain high. And we call those situations diseases like hypertension and diabetes. So think about a lot of the disease of aging as reflections of the body's declining intrinsic ability to get back to homeostasis because of potential underlying and inexorable erosion of homeostatic capacity. Now, what we do in the healthcare system today is we provide an external mechanism called the healthcare system, $2 trillion a year in the U.S., to help the body get back to homeostasis. But because we're trying to restore homeostasis and not necessarily focused on restoring homeostatic capacity, the inexorable loss of homeostatic capacity continues, manifesting in increasing features of aging, and the long run, the health system can no longer uh, help the person maintain homeostasis and then death ensues. So the gambit of the prize is to target and nurture innovations that improve homeostatic capacity, that restore homeostatic capacity instead of restoring homeostasis, to see if this could be a gateway into uh, improving health and sustained health, and longevity could be an outcome of that. Great. So this is an area you feel is undervalued, underutilized in the current day when it comes to health and healthcare, and it's something you want to promote. What is the kind of vision behind the prize? For instance, we had an interview with Aubrey de Grey recently, and he's talking about extending lifespan uh, considerably. Would you put it along those kind of lines, or is it more kind of making sure that we live to our prime years, 80 years old, 90 years old, 100 years, and we live really well? versus having the current diseases which plague a lot of people these days? Well, it's really about promoting health. And longevity uh, might be an outcome, but there's a difference between something being an outcome and a goal. Our goal is to improve health, and uh, healthy longevity may be a a consequence of that. So I I do think that the target is a little bit different. And I also think that the target of homeostatic capacity is different than homeostasis. To give you an example of high blood pressure, Think about high blood pressure or hypertension, as it's called medically, as the lag error reported by the body of the blood pressure being too high. And the way we fix this in the modern medical system is that we give patients drugs that normalize that blood pressure, meaning return it back to a number associated with homeostasis. But because we are externally providing that capacity, when you miss your dose of drug or when you come off the drug, in many cases, your baseline uh, has progressed and maybe even worse because the one thing your body knows how to do is to homeostasis against all the external challenges. The more it sees a blood pressure-lowering drug, in many ways, the body rebounds. It's called tachyphylaxis, 
And this is a challenge with most pharmaceuticals, is the body remodels against the drug. So when you come off the drug, your lag error can even be worse. Again, this is rebound hypertension, some people call it addiction, decompensation. The way nature addresses high blood pressure is by exercising, meaning the natural way to treat hypertension is to leverage your homeostatic capacity as a way to lower your blood pressure, meaning when we exercise, we're actually increasing our blood pressure by challenging it, and it elicits the homeostatic capacity to be stronger, and so the baseline blood pressure actually gets lower the more times you raise it. So it's almost a mirror image of what we're doing in the medical system today. And when you think about the diffuse benefits of aging in really all those diseases of aging, including longevity itself, it certainly suggests that using homeostatic capacity as a treatment for aging rather than tools of homeostasis uh, may actually work in terms of expanding health for society and extending longevity. Great, great. Thanks. We've spoken about hormesis quite a few times on the podcast before. Would you say it's related to hormesis? When you were talking about exercise, it sounded very similar to the kind of hormetic discussions we've spoke about. So are homeostasis and hormesis linked? Um, some people may find some overlapping in the ideas. Uh, hormesis, I first learned of it through some great writing by Ed Calabrese out in the East Coast. And um, my understanding of it is that it's the notion that at different ends of the curve, you're going to have differentiated response. I guess there's some relation to it, um, although I think the mechanisms to mechanisms attributed to hormesis have been debated out there. But the notion that challenges to the body, that many challenges to the body can actually paradoxically induce compensatory strength, so induction of homeostatic capacity, uh, I do think that there's some overlap in the ideas. Great, great. Thanks for that. Helps to situate our audience better. Okay, so coming back to the Palo Alto Longevity Prize, is there a specific reason why you decided to do it this year? And could you explain a bit more about the background? So you already have many teams participating in this challenge. Have they got any rules around defining the participation? So have you said that there's any restrictions to what they can do in order to compete? Or is it kind of very, very broad? The Palo Alto Longevity Prize is, uh, is run by a team including some of the scientific experts and industry experts in healthcare. And they are the ones who convened to determine both the criteria and they'll be the, they'll represent the independent judging panel as well. And those final parameters uh, will be announced to the public sometime this year. And, you know, they're accepting public comments. Um, remember, this is a new area, when we said a capacity, Kind of a new word, although I think the, the scientific community, it's, it's the phrase that scientific community understands and it can embrace and can develop innovations around. So, you know, we're in the early stages of all that. As to why do it this year? Well, we, we know that every year we wait, there's enormous amounts of suffering that goes around, around the planet associated with aging and, um, and loss of life. And um, so we know that, you know, every week we wait, uh, there's a million people that succumb to aging or aging-associated conditions. So we think this is a race against time, and the sooner we start, the better. We do think that this is going to take some time. It may be a series of prizes. There'll be a lot of fits and starts, uh, and we think it'll be a long journey, uh, but the earlier we start, the more people people that can benefit from uh, improvements to health. Great. Thank you very much. I understand that you put your own money, or is it Palo Alto investors that have put the money in for the prize to stimulate? Because we're seeing a lot more prizes now as a method for stimulating innovation in other industries. I think this is the first one that's tried to do it in healthcare and certainly longevity. Or have you seen other ones before? I think there have been other prizes before. 
Brianna Fries, Aubrey de Grey, did the Masuso Prize. And uh, I'm new to prizes. Um, I'm the sponsor of the prize. And uh, I learned about prizes through the, some of the experts in the prize community. And uh, you know, one of the things I like about it is that it, it mirrors how evolution works, that winning evolution works. There's a niche, there's a diversity of options that compete for the niche, and there's a winner. Great. Coming back to kind of the rules of the prize, you've decided to focus the prize on using heart rate variability, HRV, which we've covered quite often in this podcast before. Why did you decide that this was the biomarker you were going to use for the focus of the prize? Exactly. So whenever uh, you want to nurture innovation, you need to have metrics. And homeostatic capacity is a new phrase. And there are some existing biomarkers or diagnostic tests that could represent proxies of homeostatic capacity. But homeostatic capacity is a diffuse network of many, many innumerable traits at the physiologic level, tissue level, systems level, molecular level, cellular level. It's the composition and the interrelationship between all of them as a composite that reflect uh, overall organismal homeostatic capacity. So the challenge is how do you create and define biomarkers that represent proxies and effective surrogates for homeostatic capacity? The reason HRV was chosen um, was, first of all, it represents a... So HRV is heart rate variability, and it is a biomarker of autonomic capacity, which itself is a surrogate of um, overall homeostatic capacity. So it's just one variable, but happens to have a number of features that make it interesting. Number one, we have decades' worth of heart rate variability data. It's been in clinical use since 1963, to monitor fetal stress. And when HRV goes low, it's one of the criteria for determining fetal stress and um, associated increased risk of mortality. And it's notable that it's not used in the postnatal life throughout adulthood. I mean, it's really, there are very few labs around the world that actually monitor HRV in patients as they get older. And there is good cohort data, population level data, that suggests that declining HRV is associated with chronologic age. And many of the diseases of aging also are associated with aberrations in heart rate variability. None of this is established in a causal way, but the degree of association of HRV decline with the features of aging suggests that it might be an interesting biomarker. But there's some additional practical reasons why HRV was chosen. Unlike most biomarkers in health, HRV uh, can be measured continuously. Contextually, you can measure for 24 hours. Most biomarkers, as you know, it's done through blood tests, body fluid samples. You only get a snapshot of time. And given the dynamism of uh, the system, most biomarkers have a tremendous amount of variation, even in a 24-hour cycle. So the fact that most biomarkers, it's impractical to get continuous monitoring, and you can't assess changing patterns and changing dynamism over a 24-hour time cycle as well as during different contexts, make it less useful than HRV, which can be measured non-invasively, continuously. There's also a global footprint of devices, including consumer devices, that help measure HRV. What that does is it opens up the aperture in terms of the breadth of teams that can apply for the prize. If we make the biomarkers too narrow, it limits uh, the number of labs and groups around the world who might have an innovative idea on the intervention side to be able to assess their innovation. So there's a trade-off between specificity of a biomarker for homeostatic capacity versus this practicality 
uh, and the diversity of options that we may be able to solicit. So HRV, again, there's been empirical association with aging. Mechanistically, it, um, it, because it's associated with autonomic capacity, it is a feature of homicidal capacity, global footprint, non-invasive, continuous monitoring, and relatively inexpensive to obtain, unlike some, uh, some biomarkers that are proprietary and, and pretty costly. Great. Thank you for that. Are there any other biomarkers that you looked at and you considered for measuring homeostatic capacity? Uh, absolutely. Um, and only a small subset of modern diagnostic tests actually assess homeostatic capacity. I mean, you can think about a lot of blood tests you get an annual checkup as indirect proxies, but more direct proxies and more direct surrogates really require tests themselves to be dynamic. So an example of another potential surrogate is orthostatic hypotension. So it's your um, ability of the cardiovascular system to recalibrate blood pressure from a sitting to a standing position or lying to a sitting position. You know, when we are young, we have tremendous real-time system dynamism that allows us to uh, adjust despite this rapid uh, change in demand, and you really don't uh, have much alteration of blood pressure. But as we get older, it's observed that the body's ability to adapt to those changing conditions deteriorates. And so associated with aging, and that's one way to infer that there's declining homeostatic capacity. And this may help explain why, you know, as you get older, there's one of the contributors to syncope, one of the contributors to declining ability to perform a lot of more strenuous physical tasks. You can also talk, think about the cardiac stress test as an example of a homeostatic capacity test. This is one of the ones that is more standard practice out there in clinical medicine today. Essentially, in a treadmill test, one of the things we're measuring is the body's heart rate response to an exercise challenge. And in some cases, the hybrid response uh, is too rapid, so that could reflect some dysfunction in the Dago counter-response. In some cases, the heart rate increase is insufficient, so these things are reflective of a system that is less dynamic than it used to be, and and these things are associated with a lot of untoward clinical outcomes in the long haul. Same thing with the heart rate decline after exercise. One of the things we look for is, does the heart rate return to normal? Does it look like a normal curve does it happen in a normal amount of time because as we age and our intrinsic homeostatic capacity declines, in which case this is a autonomic capacity, um, there is abnormal return to normal as well. But So these are a small subset of the overall diagnostic landscape using clinical medicine today that we think already reflect homeostatic capacity. But those things uh, require, there's a, a higher burden in terms of throughput to assess innovations and when the tests themselves require um, more involvement. And furthermore, the data in those areas are strong relative to many others, but we certainly need more data uh, across the spectrum. Uh, so one of the hopes for this competition is that we help promote the idea that um, we gather more and develop more biomarkers for homeostatic capacity. Oh, great. Oh, great. I didn't realize that was a, a part of the project. Have you defined the exact standard? Because there's a few different standards of uh, HRV out there. One of the ones we've discussed quite a lot is the natural log RMSSD, which is multiplied by 20 and used in a lot of consumer devices at the moment. Have you defined that as yet? Or are you going to be defining that at one stage as a criteria for use in a project? Yeah, we're deferring that to a team of experts um, that have debated the exact same topic. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it up to them. Great, great. How can people get involved in the Palo Alto Longevity Prize? I understand there's already 15 teams which have, have signed up. Maybe there's a few more already. 
what's kind of the timeline before, for instance, um, you stop accepting new teams and then for the other steps of the project? Yeah, you know, I don't have that information at my fingertips. Uh, again, all of that, the process is being managed by the production team. And uh, again, I'm, I'm a sponsor of the prize. So those, those details I'll have to um, Great. Uh, refer you to the team. In terms of your own personal use of biomarkers, are there things that you use or you track on a routine basis for your own health, longevity, or performance? You know, I actually haven't. I haven't thought about this project relative to my own health yet. Um, it's something that I, I probably will consider. So no, I'm not doing any personal personal tracking right now. Maybe that's because you're really healthy and it, <laughs> your, your homeostasis is pretty good. So, you know, you don't feel out of sync and the need to do it. Oh, you know, you know I definitely feel it. But yeah, these are early days and I think a lot more science has to happen. And I think, um, and I think we, we will learn a ton, if nothing else, through this process. Great, great. If someone is interested in getting involved in this, perhaps putting together a team, should they just go to the website for the Palo Alto Longevity Prize? Or I understand it's still available for signing up as a project team. So would that be the best place to go? Yeah, I think the best way to engage is to read through the website. And I believe all the details are there at the paloaltoprize.org because I believe all the teams are signed up through the website process. Do you know if there's other ways people can participate beyond just being uh, putting together a team? I don't know. I don't know. Again, I would defer that to the team uh, as to the way the public can engage. Great, great. What do you think will happen in the next five or 10 years in this area? Have you got some, some kind of vision or hopes or are there any things you're excited about the opportunities that are going to occur in this area, biomarkers or longevity over the next five or 10 years? I do hold out some hope that there's a, there's a small chance that there are some major breakthroughs coming. And uh, you can sense that even in talking to the teams. Scientists tend to be pretty conservative, and also for reasons of competitiveness, they tend to undershare hypotheses and preliminary data. And after you hear enough of these really intriguing, unique ideas, uh, you realize that the scientific field is more advanced than the public realizes. And you know, one of the things that the prize is trying to accomplish, prizes such as ours, and initiatives such as ours, is to accelerate those ideas into action. It's, it's possible that there's some major breakthroughs that are possible in the five-year time frame. Uh, the thing we know for sure is that we'll learn a ton, and uh, the idea is to create new paths and new avenues of research that give us more shots on goal in terms of uh, improving people's health. Great, great. Thanks for that. Do you have one biggest recommendation or insight that you've used some kind of data or you've learned about your biology when it comes to health, longevity, and performance? That would be a recommendation for other people when they're using data. You've mentioned a few things as we've gone through this talk about like why you selected HRV, for instance. And what would be your one biggest recommendation for using data effectively to improve health, longevity, or performance? Well, I, for now, I like HRV because it's affordable and uh, it's also accessible from a technology perspective. And I think the access is growing throughout the world. Uh, so I like the convenience factor. It's more practical. Most other biomarkers... Uh, I think the distribution isn't as broad and the effects are not as real time. Um, and in terms of a lifestyle habit that uh, in a way that also maps to improvements in health, uh, exercise is still my favorite. Uh, and there's good data suggesting exercise improve the measures of HRV. And we also know that improvements of HRV as well as exercise itself it's associated with the amelioration of many diseases of aging. So based on what is known today, uh, I think that's probably the most practical thing that a person can do 
can enhance their health. Great, June. Yeah, exercise are very important. Thank you so much for your time today. I uh, really appreciate it. I know you're a very busy man. We'll put together some information on the, on the project, uh, some of those references in the show notes so everyone can get access to that. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about the project that we haven't covered already? No, that's great, Damien. I appreciate your time and thank you for having me on your show. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website theQuantifiedBody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.